0: Hello, and welcome to another episode of mind stories today. I'm pleased to have on as our guest, Dr. Mark Schoen. Dr. Shone has specialized in mind body medicine for over 25 years. He is an assistant clinical professor at UCLA's Geffen School of Medicine, where he specializes in boosting performance and decision-making under pressure and mind-body medicine. He works extensively with elite athletes, professional and college, as well as executives and UCLA medical students in strengthening their ability to thrive under pressure and in competitive and uncomfortable conditions. His method of discomfort training and Pilates for the brain builds hardiness and resilience by rewiring the fear region of the brain, which is responsible for performance under pressure. Welcome, Dr. Schoen. Welcome to another episode of Mind Stories. Today, I have Dr. Mark Schoen here to join us to talk about hypnosis. Welcome, Dr. Schoen.
1: Yes, hello. Hello.
0: Hi. So I'm excited to have you on because I haven't talked to anybody about hypnosis before on this podcast, and I think it's something that our listeners would be really interested in hearing more about. Could you give us first just a little bit of a background about what hypnosis is?
1: Yes. Hypnosis, even though it has all sorts of historical references as being something pretty wild, it really is, if you break it down to its simplest part, a form of influence where basically I or the therapist develops a good rapport with the client and then they are open to new ideas and the state itself feels a bit like an altered state. Most people experience it as relaxation and that rapport and relaxation makes people open to testing out new ideas or new feelings or feeling different physically. Hmm.
0: So when you think of hypnosis, though, you think of kind of this general idea about someone kind of moving a pendulum back and forth. So how does that all fit into this kind of this picture of hypnosis and what the actual reality is of it and what the practice is?
1: Yes, you know, there are many ways to induce a state of absorption. Whether it's reading a book, listening to music, watching a, a pendulum go back and forth, or just listening to a conversation. Mm-hmm. So the goal is again to create a state of absorption where someone is open to being influenced.
0: And it taps into an unconscious or a subconscious?
1: It can draw on the unconscious. There are, are multiple ways of using hypnosis, and one of them does involve involving the unconscious.
0: Got it. Okay. So what are the different types then? What are the different varieties of hypnosis?
1: Perhaps one of the very interesting things about hypnosis is that it acts on multiple parts of the mind and body. So you can influence specific parts of the brain while also influencing specific areas of the body therefore you can use hypnosis in different ways one just dealing with physical health problems headaches stomach aches pain sleep but then you can also deal with it with those kind of conditions that are strictly emotional maybe panic attacks maybe anxiety or phobias and and so on and then the third way is Maybe in the way that you are thinking, unconscious, going down into the unconscious and dealing with other parts of the brain that may be influencing or causing a problem.
0: Hmm. So in your practice, do you tend to focus on one specific ailment or problem? Is it more of kind of people come in with physical symptoms or is it more with emotional problems that you work with?
1: You know, I deal with all the different parts of it, physical problems, emotional problems, and a whole other area that I, I do quite a bit at UCLA with this sports teams is dealing with fear and how. Fear influences our response to pressure, basically improving people's response under pressure conditions.
0: So maybe using that example, how would the treatment course go then if you're trying to use hypnosis to work with athletes and fear?
1: Okay. Well, we know that fear is caused by a certain part of the brain that has been studied extensively now called the amygdala. And the amygdala is in part of the brain that's more the visceral gut response part of the brain, not the logical part of the brain, like the cerebral cortex. And so this fear response in the brain basically goes off whenever it perceives that we're in danger. And if it feels that we're in danger, it automatically triggers the fight or flight response. And then when the fight or flight response goes off, it then is all about trying to keep us safe rather than necessarily performing well in terms of shooting a basket or swinging and hitting a home run. So the goal of managing fear is to make it so that fear response is not so exaggerated. And so we can use hypnosis to shrink down that fear response to basically the space that's merited in the brain rather than being such a hair trigger. So I train athletes and CEOs and other people that need to perform well under pressure. I make it so that when they are uncomfortable, and pressure is uncomfortable, but it doesn't mean we're really in danger. So I need to Train the brain so that when it feels uncomfortable, it does not feel it's unsafe. And so, if I do that, then people can perform much better under pressure.
0: Okay. And how do you train the brain?
1: Okay. What I do is I create a very powerful feeling of relaxation and safety in people's brains. And if I do that well enough, it inhibits the fear response. So we can take different parts of this more visceral part of the brain and condition them almost in a Pavlovian classical way so that they don't go off or they only get triggered by certain conditions. So I I take this very safe, relaxing feeling and use it to disengage the fear response in particular conditions where we want it to happen.
0: Got it, and it's by kind of training someone. I mean, what are the specific relaxation techniques that you would focus on?
1: Well, it's really hypnosis and relaxation is the byproduct of the Mm. hypnosis. Many people think to do hypnosis, you need to create relaxation to create the result. But rather, you really just wanna create a safety and a comfort level by being safe. And then ultimately, the end result is relaxation. And then it disengages the fear response, almost like, you know, if you have a child and it's the old classical study where, let's say, the child is fearful of dogs. And let's say you pair a dog with ice cream or a cookie, mm-hmm. then you start changing. The fear response, so the fear is no longer associated with a dog, but rather eating a cookie or having a couple licks of an ice cream. So it changes it. So we can do the same thing with hypnosis without having to add the extra calories of a cookie or ice cream.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, I guess that's kind of also how you work with specific phobias, right? You kind of train the brain to associate the fear response that they have about a certain phobia, say about a dog, right? And you kind of create a different response associated with that through hypnosis. Is that
1: right? Yeah, you make the response that you want to happen, which would be feeling safe, And you make that response bigger than the response that was about fear.
0: Hmm. So you're almost creating an opposite response.
1: Yeah, it's like a form of reciprocal inhibition. So, And that's a huge part of what I do, and that was a wonderful observation. Yeah, you strengthen. Like if you just had one muscle like a tricep, the arms would always be straight. But if you start building a bicep, then you're able to start bending the arm and sort of counterbalance the tricep need to extend the arm.
0: Got it. Huh. Okay. So how would that work with depression then? How would you approach the treatment of depression with hypnosis?
1: Yes, I wouldn't say that hypnosis would be necessarily the treatment for depression. It will work for a certain percentage of people. It's sort of like you know, some people will respond to penicillin or some people will need something much more higher tech to get a result. And so hypnosis may work well for depression, may not. But I think if you said you would want me to do something with someone with depression, I would look at the specific symptoms of depression. For example, maybe an inability to sleep or maybe an obsessiveness can't turn the mind off, or you can't turn off negative thoughts, or maybe there's certain other physical symptoms like a headaches or stomach aches, then I could use hypnosis to recondition the body to feel something physically different. But that would be different than trying to knock out the actual affect or, or depression.
0: Got it. Okay. So, it's really kind of this thinking about activating disorders, right, that cause anxiety or a stress response that hypnosis would probably be the most appropriate for.
1: Hypnosis is really good for modulating symptoms. And just like you said, you know, stress and fear are great catalysts and instigators of symptoms. So, yeah, any kind of condition that might be influenced by emotion or fatigue or, or stress would be a good thing to think about hypnosis. And so if someone notices they sleep poorer under stressful conditions or they notice that their pain is worse under stressful or emotional conditions, then hypnosis would probably be a very good modality to check out.
0: Got it. The next thing I was going to ask you was about how that relates to pain. Say someone who has chronic back pain. So the goal is not necessarily to directly fix the pain, but it's the emotional response that someone does have to that maybe is how you maybe target treatment.
1: Well, actually, it's more multi-layered. You can use hypnosis to take real pain. So we're talking about authentic pain, something that has some biological source to it, let's say, rather than some sort of, you know, fictitious kind of pain. So you can use hypnosis again, as we were saying a moment ago, to build up an alternative sensation. So if someone had a back pain, let's say they have problems in the L4, L5 area, real disc problems, or had the disc injured in some way, you could use hypnosis to create a different sensation in that area. So that'd be one way of dealing with the pain. So the other sensation would get in the way of the pain itself. Second is that we know that when symptoms such as pain become chronic, that often the source of the pain or majority of it starts emanating in the brain itself. So then the other way to use hypnosis is to start changing the brain perception of that part of the body, to train the brain to think of that physical area differently rather than having pain, but maybe having another sensation. So it's similar to the first part. And then the third part is pretty much what you said, is that if emotion and stress or fatigue influence the pain symptom, then we can use hypnosis to change that fear response or the stress response. There are multiple ways to to deal with it. And then fourth, I should say one more thing, is that after we have chronic pain, sometimes the mind can get in the way of it getting better. In other words, there becomes other reasons why we hold on to the pain, something I once published many years ago called Resistance to Health. So there's where the unconscious work comes in. Mm -hmm. We can go into the unconscious and deal with its need to get in the way of getting better.
0: Got it. What is the timeline in terms of treatment for these sorts of things? Is it months? Is it weeks? What type of time commitment would someone think about if they think about doing this type of therapy?
1: We know it can be extraordinarily short-term in nature if the problem is really circumscribed and very clean and there's not trauma involved and are not resistances to getting well, but it's just like straight injury or a sudden panic attack, all of a sudden problems with nightmares or a skin disorder, or all of a sudden an acute stomach problem. These things can be really quickly changed. And when I say quick, you know, anywhere between three to seven times. Mm. But, you know, often there can be other things involved that, you know, the symptom is more a representation of something else going on. And so you get more complex. And so the average person coming in, and again, of course, it would depend on what symptom and condition we're talking about. But I'd say my average course of treatment is somewhere between a month and a half, three months.
0: Okay. And is there work between sessions that someone might need to do?
1: Well, yes. Something that really speeds up treatment is if the person is open to listening to a hypnotic sound file, which then reinforces what I do in the live session. So in the live session, I'm putting in little nuggets and little seeds that we want to start growing. And then listening to the sound file is kind of like the water that nourishes those seeds so they continue to, to grow between sessions.
0: Mm, got it. And do sometimes people need to return for a refresher if they, they've gone through a treatment course with you? I mean, do sometimes people need just kind of boosters after that or what usually happens?
1: No, in most cases it holds. So mm. if people come for a symptom, even panic attacks, it holds unless they start not taking care of themselves or something really bad comes out of nowhere, then occasionally they need to revisit it. And usually the second time is quicker than the first time.
0: Got it. So I'm also looking, you have two books on your website, and so you're an author. And so I'm just curious if you could just give us a quick synopsis. So when you're talking about kind of survival instincts, so the first book you have up there, which is, I guess, from 2013 and 14 was Your Survival Instinct is Killing You, Retrain Your Brain to Conquer Fear and Build Resilience. So is that a basic overview of kind of hypnosis and how someone could kind of treat themselves through this method?
1: Yeah, you know, it's not, neither book really is about hypnosis. I refer to it and and reference it, but the book you're talking about, the latest book, is about fear and how fear is just a powerful influencer of our life and how it affects just so many different parts from our health, from our emotions, from anger to Tolerance, lack of tolerance, sleep. So I talk about that. And then I talk about how we can learn to manage fear far more effectively. And sort of the start of the book is this one point is that we live in the present day where there are just so much great technology to make our lives incredibly more comfortable. And the paradox or the irony of it is that we've now become so accustomed to being comfortable that we're less and less tolerant of being uncomfortable. Mm. And because we're less tolerant of being uncomfortable, we now have this fear response going off in conditions that it was never meant to be triggered. So the book is about that. How do you change that? The bottom line of the first book is that discomfort is inevitable. So we're not gonna vanquish discomfort. So the goal is to make it that rather than the fear response going off when we're uncomfortable, that we can now manage discomfort without fear. So that's the main sort of talking point of the book.
0: Yeah. Huh. Interesting. And what about the other book, When Relaxation is Hazardous to Your Health? (laughs) It's a great title.
1: Oh, yeah. The other book is about the letdown effect. That's what I labeled it anyhow. It's that condition where we tend, at least a large subset of people, tend to do well under pressure, mm-hmm. stay healthy. But once the pressure is done, we get sick. And many people right, know about that, you know, taking college finals and or, you know, they get sick on holidays, Christmas vacation, and so on. And so I call that the letdown effect.
0: Hmm. So... You know, I was just thinking about it in my work, I used to work with a lot of cancer patients. And I mean, this is somewhat loosely related, but I would notice that people's emotional experience and the stress response would often come after treatment is over right and so this time when someone would expect to say okay well i'm treated i'm i'm in remission i should be kind of relaxing and enjoying myself that's really when the major emotional impact would happen to people that i would see so it's kind of a Mm -hmm. similar kind of idea right but the stress response often actually comes later on in a more obvious way to people sometimes
1: yeah you know it is a delayed response You're, you're right it can be after someone's gone through a grueling set of treatment. And and so they can relax their guard, because, oh, okay, I'm, I'm done. The fight is over. And then mm. boom, you know, the curtain comes down and and there is this huge letdown of emotions as well as physical. Mm. And and it happens in conditions not just Difficult or sad conditions could happen in happy ones. I've seen people, you know, they work so hard and they get married and making all these wedding plans and they finally go on their honeymoon and they can relax and they get sick. Mm -hmm. Or someone says, Oh, I've been can't wait to retire and they finally retire and they get a stroke. It's, Mm -hmm. It's, I mean, those are major ones we're talking about, but it happens in a lot of other ways, you know or right. on vacation, or yeah. after Christmas, and so on, yeah. Yeah.
0: So what is the solution?
1: Well, the solution is very interesting. What, what we find from the data is that when we are under stress and pressure, our body is just flushing us full of stress hormones, but as well as things as cortisol, which are you know, meant to mobilize the body, get us going, and also to manage the inflammation and at the same time these things keep the immune response up but when the stress is over it's like the the body says hey you know I can relax and so stress hormones stop the sh- blood sugar goes down cortisol goes down it's like we just totally drop the guard and the effect of it is is that the immune response goes below baseline which is mm. makes us much more vulnerable to any kind of infection that we might have been exposed to or anything that's present around us. So that's the physical effect. But the emotional effect, as you can see, like all of a sudden if all these hormones stop and the blood sugar drops, it's just like going through physical withdrawal and it leads to significant depression or a panic attack, in fact, too.
0: Right. You know, a little unrelated, would somebody ever consider using this type of treatment for ADV, attention deficit disorder?
1: Yes. Many request it. You certainly cannot cure the problem with hypnosis at all. Again, it's sort of like depression. You, you can go at certain symptoms, and one of those might be with people having a hard time falling asleep or turning their mm-hmm. mind off or or focusing, that's where you can use hypnosis, but it will not cure it though.
0: Well, I think this has been really helpful. A few kind of wrapping up questions I often ask people would be, when would this type of treatment not be indicated?
1: Well, I would say right off the bat, if we're dealing with a thought disorder with like psychosis, when someone is totally out of touch with reality or such as hallucinating or delusions, not a good choice, but Mm -hmm. won't be effective and could potentially make it worse. So that's certainly be one thing. I, I think if someone is suicidal, it wouldn't be a good treatment. If someone is in a major depression, as you know, even a psychotic depression dealing with, you know bipolar or you know what we used to call vegetative depression mm-hmm. it's, it's not going to get them going so those kind of things i wouldn't recommend hypnosis for
0: how young could you go in terms of
1: treatment age
0: what would be the oh, youngest
1: I, I used to do it in my kids when they were two years old one and a half but in my practice i've done it as early as three
0: hmm. and how does that work with kids
1: kids works really well Because kids, you know, unlike us adults, are are far less guarded, and they're just like an open book, and they're just so open to it. Now, there are, of course, kids that have some resistance to getting well, but a small minority, and in most cases, kids want to feel better. It's pretty easy, usually, as long as they're able to, you know, sit still for a little bit and are just kind of uh, imaginative.
0: Hmm. And how did you decide that this was your specialty? What drew you to this?
1: Oh, yeah. When I was 13, my mother had a book in the bookshelf on self-hypnosis. And I read it, and I thought, this is really interesting. So -hmm. then I started going to the library, getting all the books on hypnosis I could find. And by 16, I was hypnotizing kids on the block. And (laughs) by 18, I was hypnotizing kids going through finals. So I knew really early I wanted to do hypnosis (laughs) to change the body. And wow. So that's why I became a clinical psychologist that specialized in hypnosis, so I could do exactly what I'm doing now.
0: Wow. So it's a, your life's work.
1: It is something yeah. I always wanted to do. Huh. I love what I do. It's great. I, I enjoy it.
0: Yeah, it's fascinating. Well, I mean, I really appreciate you enlightening me and the listener a little bit more about hypnosis and what it is. I will... Definitely make sure that your website is listed on the episode description, which includes also the books that you've written. But are there any resources that you would recommend to people
1: yes. for someone who might
0: want to learn a little bit more about hypnosis?
1: We all belong to a society, and it's called the American Society of Clinical Hypnosis. And they have a website, which mm-hmm. is the initials of what I just said, AS. Mm-hmm. S- ch.net. Mm-hmm. And if someone has an interest, they can go to that. And there's a lot of data, a lot of research, explanations about hypnosis. It's a really good introduction.
0: Okay, great. So I will make sure that's included. Is there anything that you think would be helpful to the listener to know that we didn't? I mean, I'm sure there's a lot we didn't talk about, but kind of some of the basic concepts of hypnosis that you think we didn't cover that might be helpful?
1: I think it would be interesting to the listener to consider how so much of our behavior is conditioned and can be changed by reconditioning this old wiring and instincts. We talked about fear tonight, but you know you can also recondition the sleep response, the hunger response, and even the inflammation response. And so there are a lot of really interesting ways to use hypnosis that are very different than traditional therapy, where you're trying to kind of find a talk solution or behavioral solution. This gives another way of going at it that can be more direct and more expedient because you're going right to the source. If I could say one more thing about that is that, so traditional therapy, you are generally using the more cerebral cognitive part of the brain to try to convince and sometimes lecture this more emotional part of the brain. So it's kind of like a top down way of creating change. And I think a hypnosis is sort of the opposite starting inside, and working your way to the outside. So you start with the emotional visceral part of the brain, start changing that, and then you start changing the cerebral cognitive part of the brain.
0: And you transition to that with your therapy. I mean, you do traditional just talk therapy as well
1: correct? Yes, it's very important to do it in tandem with the hypnosis. You can't just do hypnosis alone, you've got to bring in that cerebral cognitive component. Hmm. Interesting.
0: Yeah, I think hypnosis is kind of an older treatment, maybe that I mean, not quite as common, I think, as it once Hmm. had been. Is that an accurate (laughs) assessment of it? Or?
1: I find it actually interesting that you'd say that. It's true. It's been around forever. You know, you have people like Mesmer in, in the 1800s doing it, or Rasputin doing it in old-time Russia, and then Freud, of course, doing it in the early 1900s. But there was a rebirth as it became possible to truly measure objectively the effects of hypnosis, whether it's on the immune system or just blood flow through the brain or different regions of the brain, in seeing that you can objectively see the changes, then it really opened up a whole different way of conceptualizing hypnosis. And because it has these very specific effects on the brain, then you can really start targeting these specific regions of the brain and body so it really i think of it as really the tool of the future hmm.
0: is there much of an overlap between mindfulness and hypnosis
1: well i think of both of them as altered states of consciousness where mindfulness however is more about focusing and being present so it's more of a cognitive operation. Where hypnosis doesn't require cognitive focus, it can create its effects even if the mind isn't focused in the present.
0: Hmm. Okay, so that's kind of the main difference. I That's kind of a question I've always had about the two. Well, I appreciate your time. I mean, this was so informative for me, so I really appreciate it. I'll make sure I have your website, and also the asc.h.net website available to the listener as well. And thank you so much for your time today.
1: Oh, thank you. Enjoyed it as well. Appreciate it. All
0: right. Take care. This has been Mind Stories. With remote appointments in California and offices in downtown Los Angeles, Santa Monica, Formosa Beach, Marina del Rey, and Echo Park, Cal Psychiatry specializes in medication management, mood and anxiety disorders, alternative therapies, women's mental health, and more to help you get back to your true self. Visit us at calpsychiatry.com. Thank you for listening to Mind Stories, and don't forget to subscribe.